Gracious Lord, we know that You have sought Your people. You've called them out, set them apart. And You've not just left them there, You have guided and spoken to to those who have put their faith in Jesus from all the way back at the beginning of time. And so would we with them hear you speak this morning in your word? Would your spirit be at work in our hearts so that what is said and what is heard and what is read would truly be the words of life that they are before us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear God's very word from Joshua chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeat Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. One of the most common questions that I get as a Presbyterian pastor in this American church world is, do you baptize babies? That's actually a new question in the history of the church that uh, conceivably was never asked until the time of the Anabaptists, around the time of the Reformation. Because apart from that Anabaptist movement, that is in many ways the foundation of American Christianity in many pockets, it was always assumed, yes, the church baptizes babies. And even since the second century, baptism was always inclusive of believers and their families. And some argue even as all the way back into the New Testament, and we will see today rooted even farther back in the covenant community of Israel. Now, today's sermon is not a full defense of infant baptism, but it's a dive into the richness of the sacraments, even as uh, we see see them all the way back here in Joshua chapter 5. What's going on in the life of Israel is incredible. The Lord stopped the flow of the Jordan River so that the nation might pass through on dry ground. It was a second exodus. 
as Israel had passed through the Red Sea, so they passed through the Jordan River, and here they enter the land. And as God promised at the end of Joshua chapter 4, in verse 24, you can look at that verse, it says, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And what immediately do we read in, verse, or in chapter 5, verse 1? The kings heard of it, and their hearts melted. Indeed, they saw that the Lord is mighty. And so this introduction here in chapter 5, the first verse that tells us that the kings of the Amorites and the, the kings of the Canaanites, uh, who were all the way over by the Mediterranean Sea, they heard about what God had done for Israel and their hearts melted. And in terms of the story, this, this little verse here does two things for us. First of all, it affirms that promise at the end of chapter 4 that the people of the earth will indeed see that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that came to fruition. And for good reason, these kings had hearts that melted. Because we'll see later in this book that those five kings of the Amorites were executed in chapter 10. And then in chapters 10 and 11, the southern and northern uh, kings of Canaan were also conquered. God of might is entering the land before his people. And no enemy stands a chance. The second thing that this verse does for us is it sets up the context for the following verses, specifically verses 2 through 12. Now we're going to look at verses 10, 11, and 12 as next week's sermon. But verses 2 through 12 together show us that Israel is about to receive these signs from God, these sacraments that signal and that seal God's people in the context of the fact that God has done something incredible. It is God who has worked to save his people. And from there we see these signs of circumcision and of Passover that affirm the power of God. Today's and next Sunday sermons are back-to-back sermons about sacraments. Circumcision, which we'll see in our passage today, specifically verses 2 through 9, was replaced by baptism at the time of the New Covenant, and it signifies God's work within and on behalf of His people. It signifies cutting them off from the world. Yes, that is an intentionally gruesome image. It's cutting them off from the world and from sin and from death, and it's setting them apart for Himself. And it also indicates the consequence for those who do not believe, that they will be cut off and cast away. And then the Passover in verses 10 and 11 and 12, in which the blood of the lamb was painted on the doors of Israelite homes and in which the people ate the lamb, it signifies God's gracious redemption of Israel from the hand of the oppressor and the giving of the ultimate lamb of God for the sins of the people, as we see today in the Lord's Supper, which Jesus instituted as the new covenant sacrament to replace Passover. And to that, we will turn next week. But the order is important. Circumcision first, Passover second. In fact, that was commanded in Exodus chapter 12, that a foreigner cannot eat Passover among you unless he has first been circumcised. And so in the New Testament, baptism precedes the Lord's Supper. And so we will look first at what circumcision, circumcision meant to the Israelites in this passage today. And then we'll look at what the New Testament teaches about it. And finally, we're going to look at the relevance of this sacrament for the church today. So the Old Testament sacrament... The New Testament teaching, if you're taking notes, and then the third point would be the church's sacrament. All of this is, remember, immediately following God's mighty act that melted the hearts of the kings. These sacraments are not supposed to reflect anything impressive about the people of Israel, but something mightily impressive about their God 
And the point of these is that the world might see what God has done. And so that the people of Israel might see what God has done. So let's look at the Old Testament sacrament. This passage starts in verses 2 and 3 with a very concise explanation of what happened. Verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeat Haraloth. Very matter of fact. Short summary. Yahweh commanded through Joshua that he and the people of Israel were to make flint knives, that is, knives made out of stone, um, perhaps a stone like obsidian, a sharp-edged tool. Uh, the word used for knife here is also used for sword and for spear, and so uh, in my understanding, this carries less of a connotation of a surgical scalpel and is more like a stone with the edge of an arrowhead. The command was to take these sharpened stones and to circumcise the sons of Israel, that is, the men and the boys and the young boys of the nation, all the way down to eight days old. The circumcision, um, circumcision was the act of cutting off specific flesh from the male body, and the name of that skin that is removed is called the foreskin. This is a mark, a sign on the body that identifies that person with the community of Israel and with God's covenant with his people. Someone with a mark of circumcision has an outward mark that he belongs not to the pagan gods of Canaan nor to himself, but to Yahweh, the God of Israel. It's the way that God chose to signal who was in relationship with them by his grace set upon them in the covenant. It's an outward mark of an internal reality. Verses 2 and 3, as matter of fact as they are, is quite a gruesome scene. It's almost certainly a day of great consternation within the camps of, his, of the Israelites. I'm not sure anyone was in a good mood that day. There was blood and pain and lingering soreness. In fact, there's even a story back in Genesis 34 where the men of Shechem were circumcised and were in so much pain that they were all killed because certainly they were unable to be much use in wielding a sword. And that explains why in verse 8... We read that when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. The whole nation, that is all the males, were circumcised so much that this place is called Gibeat Haralot, which means literally the hill of foreskins. Okay, why did this have to happen? Quite a scene. Not necessarily every pastor's dream to speak about this. Much less was it Joshua's dream to do this. So why did it have to happen? Why is this important? Well, verses 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, that, the rest of that long paragraph right there in the middle, the author goes to great lengths to explain why it was done. It even says right at the beginning of, of verse 4, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. The assumption, the default, is that this should have already been done. They should have already been circumcised as God had commanded. So why not? Well, we get the long version in verses 4 through 7. In the wilderness, this is my summary of, of, of verses 4 through 7. In the wilderness, remember that first generation known for their unfaithfulness, the ones who perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord? The ones who came up from Egypt yet also in many ways left their hearts in Egypt. In fact, they're connected to Egypt four times in three verses these people described as men of war who for 40 years wandered in the wilderness because of their unbelief and were unable to take hold of the land flowing with milk and honey. Yeah, those guys. Surprise, surprise, they failed to obey in circumcising their children. 
these children that we read about in verse 7. So it was their children. The generation that followed the faithless generation whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. This new generation, it's, it's a type of revival for Israel. It's, a, a hope, it's hopefully a generation that defines Israel as those who are obedient and who are faithful and who understand that the law leads us to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and to love our neighbor as ourselves. God is identifying his people again graciously with his covenant of grace. And just as the military enemies are melting with fear across the land as Israel has entered, so the spiritual enemy of God is melting back from God's people because they are marked with a covenant of grace. One commentator explains that circumcision and Passover, these two sacraments, are the art of spiritual warfare. And in it we see God fighting on behalf of his people. Okay, but why the act of circumcision? How is it spiritual warfare? Well, we have to look back all the way to Genesis 17. It was a command from God himself that circumcision be practiced for Abraham and for all his descendants throughout his generations. Genesis 17, verses, uh, starting in verse 10, says, This is my covenant, God speaking, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generations. And it goes on in verse 14 and explains what happens if they are not circumcised. It says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So who is in covenant with God? Those who bore the sign of circumcision. An Israelite not bearing the sign of circumcision has no outward distinctive sign of the inward belonging to God. Moses, in fact, was almost struck dead for failing to circumcise his son. And then Zipporah stepped in. She intervened and, had, and circumcised their son, and so the Lord spared his life. Now, I understand that we have much to unpack regarding the significance of circumcision, for, um, but we can see clearly already that God commanded the circumcision of all those who are descended from Abraham. And so the fact that Israel has not been circumcised at this point in the story is because Israel has been disobedient. The uncircumcision of the nation's flesh reflected the disobedience of Israel's heart in the wilderness. And it's really important that we note that the outward sign is tied to the inward reality. The circumcision of the heart is really what God seeks so why is the command so intense? Why would someone who is uncircumcised be cut off from the promises of God? It's because it is more than just an optional token of an individual's choice. The outward circumcision of the flesh was to be indicative of inward circumcision of heart. It means that sin is cut away from this person. And it shows that the heart of the circumcised one has been changed and the heart is now set apart for God marked as belonging to Yahweh. It's a powerful sign of God's covenant, his electing love and his work. Deuteronomy 10.16 says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. 
Well, why does it say circumcised? Therefore, well, the therefore um, we read in the prior verse in Deuteronomy ten fifteen says, because the Lord has set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day, therefore you must be circumcised in your heart. And in the physical circumcision, we are able then to see what God has done in the heart. It's a powerful sign of God's covenant and of a sincere response to God's covenant on the part of the ones who are set apart. Deuteronomy 30 says it similarly, yet a little bit differently. It says, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed. All right, that just happened as they crossed the Jordan River. So Deuteronomy says, the Lord will give you this land and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And so those who seek to obey the Lord's commands, those whose heart have, hearts have been circumcised, obey with the outward sign of circumcision. The circumcision of the flesh was not to end its significance at the skin level. The whole heart of the person was to be filled with love for God. And so the marks of a Christian are, just, are not just about the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And once they had returned to unfaithfulness again, I'm sorry for the spoiler alert, but the nation of Israel returns to unfaithfulness again. Jeremiah shows up on the scene and he says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. These are people who are are supposedly in covenant with God, but have no love for him nor for their neighbor, and their deeds are evil. It is important to note that the act of circumcision itself has never saved anyone. It is to reflect the saving circumcision of the heart in which God removes sin and renews the heart of his children. This is how Israel is supposed to be signaled. As they had just witnessed God's saving work of redemption at the Jordan River, this is their sign that says, I belong to that God who has covenanted out of his grace with me. And we are the inheritance of great blessings. And so in that circumcision, they are marked so that all might see what God has done. What does the New Testament say about circumcision? The nation followed through with it. Joshua led them faithfully through this, and it prepared them for Passover in verses 10 through 12. But then you fast forward to the New Testament and it begins to speak of this circumcision because as Christ comes onto the scene, there's a fuller understanding. Romans 4.11 is one of the most important verses about the sacraments. I'm going to read the first half of Romans 4.11 here. It says, and he, speaking of Abraham, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Circumcision was a sign of the inward faith. And the righteousness that he had was sealed to him in that circumcision, although he had been prior physically uncircumcised. And so it's called a sign and it's called a seal in Romans 4. It's this sign of circumcision, as we saw the uh, Israelites understood in Joshua 5. It's a sign of the covenant. As Genesis 17, 11 says, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you, God said. 
And it's a sign of covenant curses, which essentially says, if I break the covenant with God, may I be cut off. But it's a seal of righteousness. Like the wax signet ring of a king that turns a normal-looking letter into an important letter with regal authority, so God's seal on his people carries authority and power with it. It does not mean that Abraham was saved by his circumcision. In fact, the opposite point is made. On the contrary, Romans 4.11 says, as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So it is a seal of the covenant blessing that is there by faith, by God's work. It's a confident exhibition of God's prior electing love and his grace at work in the one who is sealed with the sign. The act itself, of course, doesn't have any power, but that sacrament as a sign and seal, coupled with the faith of Abraham, is a powerful display of the authority of God in saving his people. And Colossians 2. Those of you who have entered into discussions over baptism know Colossians 2. Colossians 2, verses 11 through 14, explain this connection between circumcision and its replacement with baptism. Let me read you Colossians 2, verses 11 through 14. It says this, In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So it's already reflecting the heart of what circumcision is about. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This Old Testament sacrament, the sign and seal of circumcision, is tied directly to the gospel. And baptism, which is its replacement, tells us that God has canceled the record of debt that stood against us and has been nailed to the cross, and so we die to sin and live in righteousness. The Old Testament sign of cutting off the foreskins is no longer the sign of believers today. 1 Corinthians 7 makes that point clear. But what it pointed to, what circumcision indicated, the circumcision of the heart, a heart of obedience and love for God, that continues to be essential, and that continues to be a heart the heart of baptism, which replaces it. This new circumcision of Christ that Colossians 11 talks about, we see it in baptism. And so now in baptism, we see what God has done. And so let's look at the church's sacrament. Point three. And this is rooted in part in verses eight and nine of Joshua 5. The outward sign of baptism indicates an inward reality, the circumcision of the heart. Our Westminster Confession of Faith explains these biblical principles like this. It says baptism is admission of the person baptized into the visible church, just like circumcision was a sign of one being a part of the nation of Israel, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. So if baptism 
as explained there, is not the replacement of circumcision, then um, one theologian, uh, Louis Burkhoff, he says that the church no longer has an initiatory right for those coming into the church. But it is the new circumcision, and we will see here very important parallels between the two, especially in the spiritual significance of them. In fact, we believe that the essence of baptism and of circumcision is the same. The, the things that they signal and seal are the exact same spiritual blessings, though, of course, at different stages of God's revelation and of clarity and knowing how salvation would come in Jesus. As all circumcision was the sacrament of the covenant of grace, so all baptism is a sacrament of the covenant of grace. It's the same covenant, the same welcome into God's salvation by faith, the same indication of the removal of sin and a renewed heart. And while circumcision went out with the old covenant, rooted in the covenant of grace, there was the old covenant, the bloody sacraments of Passover and of circumcision. Now in the new covenant in Jesus, now that the blood has been paid once and for all, those sacraments are no longer bloody. It's the bread and wine and it's the baptism that signify that same underlying covenant of grace beneath it all. In this sign, we get to the heart of what circumcision was about. Colossians tells us it's not about the sign that's made with hands at its very core. Instead, it's about the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Therefore, when we're baptized, it's very important to note, especially in certain conversations in the Christian world, that it's not the water that saves us. It's not the act itself that saves us. Because in the act of baptism, we see it, that God is the one at work, and we see it by faith. Baptism now is that sign of God's election of his children. It's a seal of his saving grace at work in his people. And because it's based on God's acts, it is powerful and important and continues to be commanded. In God's commission, the great commission, Jesus' commission to the church, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Because in it we see what God has done for his people. So if someone comes to me and says, hey, I was baptized when I was uh, young and I, I didn't understand what baptism was about. Can I be rebaptized?" I would gently say, no, it's not about your act or your declaration of your faith. It's about God's covenant love set upon you. It's a sign of the removal of your sin and your renewed heart that should be embraced by faith as you grow into it. God's grace for you in the first baptism has not run out. Or if someone says the guy who baptized me turned out to be a crook, I'd say the same thing. It's not about the doer of the sacrament, but the worker of salvation, Jesus. Jesus remains the same. God's covenant is just as secure. And the command to be baptized, thankfully, isn't dependent upon the moral perfection of the one administering it. Or else the baptism that we'll witness next week would also be fruitless. The importance of baptism is not limited to the moment of its administration. This was a huge turning point for me when I started to understand the importance of baptism is not limited to that moment that we get wet. 
Here, here's how the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it in, in chapter 28. It says, the efficacy, that means the effects of baptism, the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered, but we see the grace grow by the Holy Spirit according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. The value of your baptism doesn't run out when you dry off. We live our whole lives growing into our baptism growing apart from the world and growing deeper into Christ. And as a Jewish person would grow more and more into the reality that he is set apart for God in a world of idolatry and wickedness, so we grow more and more into the fact that we are God's elect people set apart from the world, growing deeper and deeper into Christ. But what if someone who's baptized never has faith? What if somebody who is baptized fails to embrace Christ and never grows up into Christ. Well, we see exactly what happens in Joshua 5, verse 6. It says, They perished in the wilderness because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see that land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. The promise was theirs for the taking. As the circumcised nation of Israel, the promise to have that land flowing with milk and honey was right there. And they refused it, and so the Lord took that promise back away. Not that God changes his heart, but the covenant relationship is always conditional upon obedience. And it is only those whose obedience is accomplished by Jesus who receive those blessings. That's why it's hugely monumental at this moment in Israel's history for the people to be circumcised on this day, coupled with faith in Yahweh, because they were grabbing hold of those ancient covenant promises that seemed to have faded, yet have been renewed as they have seen God powerfully intervene on their, ha- on their behalf, and as he has, is giving them the land that he had promised, that he had sworn to their fathers that they might have, and they took hold of those promises by looking to God and by being obedient in the sacrament that God gave them. So our baptism reflects these same realities as the Old Testament signs. The spiritual things, circumcision and Passover, signified and and exhibited were for substance the same with what baptism and communion signify. Again, back to Louis Burkhoff. He says this really well with with, with great clarity, and I think this is um, the most helpful statement. So uh, if you've been wrestling with this connection so far, listen to this. Baptism corresponds with circumcision in spiritual meaning. As circumcision referred to the cutting away of sin and to a change of heart, so baptism refers to the washing away of sin and to spiritual renewal. Therefore, as circumcision showed Israel that the reproach of Egypt is gone, they no longer belong to sin, so baptism shows us what Joshua 5.9 says. Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. When we are baptized into this promise, the reproach of Egypt has no claim on us anymore. What does that reproach of Egypt mean? Well, it refers back to the days that Israel was in slavery, that they were in bondage. But if you're baptized, you're no longer enslaved to your old slave master, the enemy, Satan. And your spiritual enemy knows it, and he melts with fear. But because reproach is actually 
mostly used in connection to uncircumcision throughout the Old Testament, then the reproach of Egypt actually talks about that stain that remained on their forefathers in the wilderness. Those who continued in disobedience, those who wandered because they did not obey and they were faithless. Therefore, even the stain from their forefathers, even there in God's grace, he allowed this generation of Israel not to bear that shame of their fathers. Their fathers were circumcised in the flesh, but they were uncircumcised in their hearts. And this generation is receiving the sign that represented their heart of faith. And so we, no matter what family we come from, no matter what kind of disobedient past we ourselves have lived, and no matter what kind of reproach of Egypt we bear, when we come to Jesus, we are signaled and sealed as free from that life of faithlessness free from disobedience, free from sin, free from our former slave master, sin. And we are sealed as the ones whose sins are washed away by Christ, whose hearts have been and are being renewed in life. And all of this is fruitless unless it is done in Jesus. The Old Testament believers looked forward to the sacrifice that would pay for their sins. We look back on the sacrifice that has paid for our sins. I mean, we get to hear this story in its fullness. Let me tell you the quick version right here. Jesus was perfect. He died. As the priest who did not have to pay for his own sins, but, but paid for the sins of all those who believe in him. And he was raised from the dead on the third day. And as he washes away our sins with his righteousness that pours from his substitutionary atonement, so we, when we are baptized, are sealed to the act of dying to self and rising in new life. And therefore, as those washed in Jesus' righteousness are heirs of the blessings of eternity. The children who are raised in this church have been baptized with this sign that they do not belong to the world. They belong to God. And his covenant of grace fills this place through the word, through the supper, through baptism, through prayer, through fellowship. And if any grows up not to believe, it would be proof that this promise that was given to enter the land flowing with milk and honey will surely be taken away from those who do not have faith. I speak to those who have never looked to Jesus in faith right now. Those who have never been baptized. Those who have not bowed the knee to Jesus. Be warned of the danger that exists being outside of Jesus. But see the welcome that is extended to all. Believe in Jesus and be saved. And you're invited to bear that sign of his covenant by being baptized in which you are indicated as an heir of all the abundant blessings of eternity. And now, if you adults are believers and have never been baptized, I urge you strongly to do so. Along with your faith in Jesus, do not bear the sign of uncircumcision, of unbaptism, that says that you're cut off from these blessings in Christ, but be marked by this baptism that Jesus gave to his church to continue so that the world might see what God has done by saving you from sin and from the enemy. And if you, children in this congregation, are seeing now how magnificent your baptism is because of what God has done for you, let it remind you in confidence of God's saving work for his people.
And children, if you're ready to profess your faith in your Savior, Jesus, tell your parents or talk to me. It's a mighty blessing to be marked as God's and to grow up into Christ-likeness so that all might see on you what God has done. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, author of the covenant of grace who welcomes your people into this inheritance and this blessed relationship with you, we thank you for this truth. We pray that we would be those who remember our baptism and who are filled thereby with confidence in what you have done. We belong to you. We are sealed to you. We belong to this fellowship as the bride of Christ. Would we no longer let our loyalties in the world drive us or define us? Kill that sin so that we might live with renewed hearts in Jesus, who has given it all for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.